Dan Flanagan is a lawyer and a friend of mine, and he writes amazing crime novels. His Peter O'Keefe detective series is a must-read for fans of noir, action, and suspense. Book Life Publishers Weekly called his novels polished and rich with jolting surprises. His protagonist, Peter O'Keefe, is a Vietnam vet turned private investigator. He deals with all kinds of shady characters, from Wall Street schemers to mafia bosses. His book, The Big Tilt, won two prestigious awards for crime fiction. Don't miss this series. Find the link in the show notes. Welcome, all you wiretappers, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have in the studio via Zoom with me, our old friend, Vic Ferrari. Now, you may remember him. He had the Tommy Uba story, and you just heard that, and that is the greatest story ever, dudes. That story was great. And uh, Vic, it's really good to have you back. Gary, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. I, I enjoy coming on. Great. Now, let's first thing let's do this. Tell a little bit about, you know, we know you have a full career with the NYPD and you also started writing books afterwards. So talk a little bit about your books. Yeah, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. I worked in a lot of different units. When I retired from the NYPD, I started writing down my stories and I've written a series of books, four of which are a behind-the-scenes look into the New York City Police Department. So if you like true crime or want to know the bizarre and crazy things that happen behind the scenes in the NYPD, I have NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department, Grand Theft Auto, that's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, and NYPD Law and Disorder. They're all on Amazon, $10 paperback, $2.99, ebook download. Cool. All right, guys, I'll have links to those. I'll have links to his Amazon author page and to the books uh, and then the show notes down below. So check those books out. He's got some great stories and and he's got some uh, some uh, he's a great storyteller and he's got some good stories just off the top of his head, too. And Vic and I were talking the other day, uh, maybe one little quick story, Vic, if you don't mind that when we were talking the other day, you know, I I've been promoting this new podcast called The Set because those guys really took care of me and promoted my podcast for free one time, and they just asked that I'd promote theirs someday. And, and that was about the Dirty 30 in NYPD, and you had a pretty good story about somebody, uh, some cop wearing a wire on another cop in the station. Well, <laughs> remind me of that story. Yeah, the whole thing with the 30th Precinct, I was in the narcotics division when there was rumbles. There was talk that um, something was going on in that precinct. And uh, a guy that I worked with used to date a girl that lived in that neighborhood. And her brother was a player. And uh, one time, this guy that I worked with goes, there's something going on in that precinct. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know. My girlfriend's brother's talking about cops ripping off drug dealers and you know all sorts of crazy stuff. And I said, come on. That happened in the 7-5 like 10 years ago. That, that can't be going on now. Because I'm just telling you, I'm hearing things. So in the narcotics division, you're doing buy and bust operations. And if you're making the arrest that day, you're in a vehicle with the supervisor. And you have like back then, it was like a suitcase. It looked like something in a James Bond movie. It's called a Kell receiver. And your undercovers are wearing Kells. And a Kell transmits the audio to the Kell receiver. So when your undercover's out making a buy, you're able to hear what's going on in case he's getting messed with. Did the buy go down? So we had done our buy and bust operation and a couple of us had to use the men's room. So we pull up to the 30th precinct. We're just about to get out of the vehicle to go into the station house and the Kell lights up and you hear chatter in the locker room. And uh, my sergeant goes over the radio and he tells our undercovers, he goes, hey, turn your Kells off. And they go, what are you talking about? We're back at 
we're back at the barn, which is our office, which would have been out of range for the yeah. Kel receiver to pick up. And they go, our Kells are off. Or we put them back. So wh- where is the sound coming from? And we, <laughs> we're hearing like gossip and going on in the station house. We're like, oh, shit, someone's wearing a wire in the locker room and we're picking it up. So my sergeant looked at us. We looked at him. He put that car in reverse and we got the hell out of there because it was like, to us, we knew something was going on. And yeah. another story I told you, in narcotics, you're locking up 10, 15 people at a time, right? So this particular day, I had the prisoner van. It's like a panel truck. And we drop off a bunch of these prisoners that we had locked up and they had been processed at the 2-5 precinct up in Harlem. And uh, 2-5 or 2-6, it doesn't matter. So we drop off these prisoners. We leave. We're about, a ha- we're about a half hour later. I look in the back of our van and I see a pair of sunglasses. And the quickest way to get a civilian complaint in the NYPD is over property because someone says, hey, my sunglasses are missing. My keys are missing. The cops threw out my wallet. I turn to the guy I was working with. I says, I know it's going to be a pain in the ass. Let's go back to the precinct and give this. find out who owns these sunglasses. I'll just go into the cells. Whose glasses? Someone will say they're mine. Thank you. We drive back to the precinct and the cop that's watching the cells is like white as a ghost. And I said, um, we, I got to go in there and give, um, I got to see who owns these sunglasses. He goes, you can't. I says, why can't I? He goes, internal affairs is in there and they're interviewing your prisoners. Oh. Said, <laughs> he goes, they pulled all the narcotics prisoners out and they're interviewing them. So that kind of call, and we were doing buy and bust in the 3-0 precinct that day. So we knew, you know, it's not us. That there's definitely an active case going. And then when that thing, you know, blew open i mean it was huge for the new york city police department it was on the news it was in the paper every day uh interesting well thanks thanks vic those are interesting stories so guys check out the set set it's i've listened to three episodes i think they're just up to the fourth one now it's it's uh engrossing <laughs> they got one of the uh cops that they turned on that i can't remember his name now uh, brown i think anyhow they cut, turned one of the cops they, they're interviewing him uh, I think he might have been the one wearing the wire that day, actually, Vic. He, Possible. So, <laughs> crazy, crazy world. You know, that by bus, I, I tell you guys one quick little story. We were doing by bus. Well, my squad worked with, I had a tax squad or a SWAT team, and, and we worked with the undercover narc. So they'd go out in the projects, and they'd make the buy, and then they'd call us on the radio and say, that guy with the blue shirt and the blue hat or whatever on the corner, 13th and Highland, just made a buy from him. So our guys had a van and, and just a nondescript a surveillance van, basically, only it didn't have anything on the inside of it. So we pulled up next to them and they would open the side door and somebody just reach out and grab this buyer, the seller, and pull him in and slam the door shut and take off. So everybody else didn't know that this was going down. <laughs> it was crazy. I was sitting there watching one and I knew they were going to get him. And I was just sitting about two blocks up the street. And I see the brown van turn the corner and I kind of looked away and I looked back and I'd seen the guy and I looked away and I looked back and the van was driving off, making a turn on up the street and the guy was gone. It was like he just disappeared into thin air. This is working. dudes. This is working. Nobody knows that we're snatching these guys off the streets. So it's a lot of fun doing that stuff. A lot of action. Dangerous, too, though, for those undercovers. So yeah. anyhow, Vic, let's uh, let's talk let's talk some of your stories, some street stories from New York City PD, and and you know we like the mob here. With any brushes you had against the up against the mob? Well, I grew up in the Bronx, 
lower middle class family. I grew up in what's called the Throgs Neck Pelham Bay area. And as a kid, I mean, I'm half Irish, half Italian. My dad's Irish. So, I mean, my father wasn't involved in the mob or anything like that. But like you start seeing things and being exposed to things that later on in life you go, oh, that that was totally mafia related. So I think it was like in sixth or seventh grade in middle school, one of the Italian kids would come around like every Thursday or Friday with the football sheets. So for those of you that don't know, it's a piece of paper and it's got every NFL game. And then beneath that, it's like every college game with the point spread. And you circle which team you think is going to win. And I forget how the payout goes, but if you pick three winners on a $1 bet, you win $10. I mean, it's better odds than Vegas. And, you know, you'd fill out your sheet. You'd give the kid the money. You'd hold on to your sheet if you won. I mean, we were gambling in sixth, seventh grade. And then in high school, it got bigger. There was more stuff. It was almost like a Las Vegas night. And it was always an Italian kid. So his dad was probably either a mob associate or his uncle was. Or, But, I mean, the mob was making money off of kids in grammar school. Well, middle school and high school. But, like, we didn't see it as a big deal because it was only a buck. And then in my neighborhood... Yeah, there's different businesses that are locked up by the mob. And what I mean locked up is you can like, like private sanitation. You just can't open up a private sanitation company back then in the five boroughs and then compete with these guys yeah. because they're going to burn your trucks. They're going to beat up your drivers. And in some instances, a couple of owners out Long Island were killed because they were just bucking the system. It's the same goes if you own a pizzeria, right? And you open a pizza parlor and the Pepsi guy shows up and the Pepsi guy gives you a great deal. He's going to put in the refrigerated cases that say Pepsi on it. He's going to give you a Pepsi clock. And let's just say for argument's sake, two liters of Coke, uh, two, la- two liters of Pepsi at $2 and the fountain soda, you get a great deal in the fountain soda, right? So one day this guy comes in and he sits down, he orders a slice and he goes, you got Coca-Cola? No, we got Pepsi. I really like Coca-Cola. Sorry, we got Pepsi. He goes, you know, my cousin's got the route around here. You should talk to him. Well, I did. And he wants $3 for a two-liter bottle, two-liter of Pepsi. And the fountain soda, it's not the same. Yeah, but I really like Coke. I don't know what to tell you. He leaves, right? And then one day you come into work and someone cut your awning up. You got like a vinyl awning overhang. Someone's yeah. tore it to shreds. And uh, the guy comes in, he orders the slice again. And he goes, what happened to your awning? I don't know. It must have been kids or it got hit by lightning. I don't know. You know, I really like Coke. You know, maybe if you had Coke here, you wouldn't have these problems, right? Now, if you still don't get it, yeah, right? One Friday night, it's late. It's about one in the morning. You're closing up. A couple of young guys come in and they beat the crap out of your customers and even you get smacked around. The guy comes back a week or two later. Yeah. What happened? I heard there was a problem in here. You should really order. You should really get Coke. So- it, it just asks, and finally you just give in and you're like, I don't need these problems. I'm going to use their guy, you know, and not in my neighborhood, but there were other neighborhoods I heard of, you know, in different parts of New York City where you just couldn't open a deli because you're infringing on so-and-so's cousin. And, you know, it's <laughs> it's cold cuts, but the next thing you know, you're, you're closing shop and somebody's wearing an Abraham Lincoln mask with a baseball bat and gives you a crack on the head. <laughs> so. You know, you, you kind of learn early on that you got to play by their rules or you're going to get hurt. Crazy, crazy. It's, well, uh, my dad, or just my dad worked in a wholesale meat place out in Queens and it was owned by the mob. Yeah. I didn't know this. 
You know, my dad didn't say, yeah, oh, by the way, you know, I, I work for a mob controlled place. My dad wasn't in the mafia. He was a butcher. But this was like a place you'd see in The Sopranos where you'd have guys out on parole that needed a W-2 form. So, the you know, the, and their mob associates or even sometimes made guys, they're working there. But they're not really working. They're kind of hanging out and making sure no one screws around with the place. And I mean, I've told the story countless times and it's in my book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. One day, my father sends me up to the second floor to get something. I forget. It was like plastic boats for chicken or chopped meat or whatever. And I'm going up these stairs, and a man comes bouncing down the concrete stairs. He almost hit me. And the guy is like in a lump at the bottom of the stairs, and his hands are all broken up, and he's got blue paint on his mouth. And he's like, help me, help me. And I'm just looking at him. And coming down the stairs is, let's just say for argument's sake, Anthony and Carmine. And they're laughing. And they go, oh, Vic, don't worry about him. He's an old friend of ours. I'm like, friend? And the guy's (laughs) like, help me, help me. They pick this guy up like he was a pile of garbage, drag him out in the street. They just dump him. So I run up to my father. He's cutting steaks. And I go, dad, you know, Carmine and Anthony just beat the crap out of this guy and threw him in the street. My father goes, just keep working. I'll find out what's going on. Just keep your mouth shut. So later that day, we're on our ride home. And I go, dad, like, what was the story with that? And he goes, some people just don't learn. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, that guy's a shoplifter. They oh. caught him a couple of weeks ago, tried to steal some steaks. They smacked him around. They told him never come back. Today, he showed up and he tried to shove a slab of ribs down his pants. They brought him up to the second floor. They kicked the shit out of him. They broke his hands in a vice. The guy was screaming he wanted a drink of water, so they poured paint down his throat and threw him down the stairs. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that that's kind of how those guys would protect their businesses. And I said, my father, and but that was the last day I ever worked there because my father goes, you know, you're now you're 14 or whatever I was. He says, I, I don't want you around these people. He goes, I need this job. He says, I don't want you buddying up with these guys or their kids. And then the next thing, you know, I got a problem with you because that was it. And it was McDonald's, here I come, and then a gas station and other other things. Yeah. But yeah, I was working there, you know, from the ages of like 11 to 14. I was making chop meat and Things and things that were against OSHA regulations, making sausage, <laughs> chop meat, and feed things into a meat grinder like 13, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah, those mob guys, they get it. We had one guy that always had a meat processing plant, a locker plant, as we call it. And, uh, you know, he got popped by the uh, USDA for uh, running, buying what we call cancer eyed beef and running it through there. <laughs> you, you, beef would get something called cancer eye. And, you know, the, you could you buy it real cheap and then run through your locker plant. It really wasn't going to hurt anybody particularly, but, you know, it was against the rules. They didn't care. There was, there was always things against the rules there. I remember one time, if memory serves me correctly, there was one time there was asbestos there or something upstairs. So yeah. they were told to get it out. So they got it out. But they didn't hire like an asbestos <laughs> company. You know, no. They just you know got a bunch of guys. They got fined for that. There was another time I think my dad was telling me, oh, God, this is going back 40 years ago. Something about they got caught switching the electric meters. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. So when, yeah. when the meter reader, this before everything was computerized, a guy would come around and write down your numbers and like they would change that. But it's funny. So as I get older, I get this job before I become a member of the NYPD as an exterminator. So I have a route. So every day I stop at the place, I get my poison, they give me a route. And there was this one bar in Little Italy in, in the Bronx 
They wanted me in and out of there by 6.30 in the morning. So I got there at 6. They wanted me in and out. I, if I came a minute after 6.30, they did not want me in this place. So it was a pain in the ass. I, I always remembered that I had to get up really early to be there. So it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there was more going on in this bar. Like I would come in there and as I'm exterminating, I see the gambling slips, the policy slips all over the place, right? And I'm just, and the, it was the same bartender all the time. He'd let me in, he'd shut the door and, you know, I'm exterminating. I did this for months. And one morning I'm in there and I'm behind the bar. So I'm kind of, I got him crouched and I'm spraying for cockroaches or whatever. And I hear the bartender open the door and I hear a conversation at the front door. And uh, I pick my head up, you know, like a whack-a-mole. I pick my head up. And, and I see the bartender handing this big burly cop a brown paper bag. Yeah. And the cop looks at me and he just, he loses it. He just starts screaming, what is he doing here? Blah, blah, blah. He just starts tearing into this bartender. And the bartender pushes back. The bartender says, listen, my bar, I run it. I, he's a kid. Don't worry about him. Just get out of here. Like dismiss the cop. And the <laughs> cop put his tail between his legs and he leaves. So I'm just standing there and the bartender goes, don't worry about him, kid. He's an old friend of mine. Don't don't give him a second thought. I go, okay. And I didn't. So two or three years later, I go through the police academy. I get assigned to a South Bronx precinct in field training. You'd never guess who's <laughs> oh, no. right around mine. <laughs> and you can't miss this guy because he was tall, yeah. bald. I mean, you just, you just couldn't miss. I don't want to go into too much detail. but And he looks at me and I look at him and I'm like, Oh shit! This is the guy I just saw two, three years ago getting a brown paper bag in that that mob gambling den, right? He didn't say a word, but what he would do is every so often when he knew I was in the locker room, he had a very deep, gravelly voice, and he, I'd hear him go, "All I got to do is six months to go before I retire," and then it was three months before I had to retire. <laughs> it was like something out of a prison movie because like the lockers were down in the basement. So I never would venture into that locker room unless I was with like another guy. You know what I mean? Like I just didn't want to get freaking confronted by this guy or if he was going to say anything. So anyway, he retires. I go on to a precinct. I don't think anything of it. But I used to see him after I retired. He was always driving around with like the crackheads in his car, like the crack whores at the neighborhood. Because this is like the late 80s, early 90s. Like it was an epidemic going on. So I don't know, seven, eight years later, I'm in the narcotics division. There's a guy from that precinct that's in my team now, and he's an older guy, so I knew he would know him, and I, I forgot the guy's name, but I started describing him, and he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, oh, he was a dirtbag. He goes, I believe everything you tell me. He goes, he was one of these guys. He was getting called down in maternal affairs all the time. He goes, it was like a race against time. Was he going to get fired, or was he going to get his pension? He goes, and he just kind of squeaked out the door. He goes, yeah, he was no good, he go, and you know, like I said- he could have anything could have been in that bag. They could have been giving him free food, but yeah. there was something going on with him in that bar that he didn't want me to know about. And then when I saw him, like he was really like giving me like some real hard vibes. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was what we affectionately re- affectionately call a bag man. I would say he he was picking up for Probably. himself and and maybe a couple of others. But you know, I mean, it happens. It happens in every big city. It's not. Uh, uh, not pleasant but it does happen you know i i, I just had something in my head and, I, and now it's gone out of my head the um what about bag men or no i know i know what it was it was going back to your uh, uh was that a parlay card that you were getting my son when yeah he was 14 or 15 he had had this buddy uh, an irish kid and 
his dad had parlay cards all the time. Matter of fact, I, I was just talking to Scott about this the other day. He said, oh, yeah. He said, Eddie's dad once started going to AA and they kicked him out of the meetings because he was always passing out parlay cards. <laughs> I said, you remember when you guys used to get those? You used to, I kind of bothered me. Oh, yeah, I know. He said, it was just fun. So he and Eddie, the, the son, would fill out a parlay card, put five bucks or whatever on it, give it back to his dad who'd turn it in to whoever he got them from. Well, I'll, I'll tell you another funny story about a mob story that's in my book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. So um, freshman year of high school, our Catholic high school would, um, they would charge you up front. Like, I don't, I'm just giving numbers. Save my tuition in 1980 was $3,000 a year, right? Yeah. Parents could recoup, I think it was up to $200. Like in October, they would give you raffle tickets. And if you could sell up to a hundred or two hundred bucks, you could keep the money. The family could keep the money. It would like be deducted from your tuition. So here I am, freshman year. My mother finds out about this. She goes, on Saturday, I want I had fifty dollars worth of raffle tickets. She goes, I want you to sell these raffle tickets. I says, All right. She sends me out into the neighborhood. Now my neighborhood is all Catholic. Everybody in my neighborhood's got kids in Catholic school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. They got to become a priest. It was like trying to sell Bibles in the Vatican. (laughs) Everybody was nice. But I mean, I spent the whole day. I was running into other kids I knew. like couldn't sell these frigging things, right? I come home that night and my mother's like, you didn't sell anything? I said, no. Then my father comes home. She's working him up. And uh, she goes, he's probably playing football. And I said, no. I said, I spent the day banging on doors. She goes, well, go out after dinner, and go to the houses where nobody was home and try to sell them again. I'm like, great. I step out of the house. There's this kid that lived two doors from me, and he's since deceased. He was a wild kid. He was in my Catholic high school, and I'm crying to him about, I can't sell these friggin' things. He goes, no. He goes, you don't sell them door to door. You sell them to drunks in bars. Yeah. I said, oh. And I go, well, my parents don't want me in bars. He goes, how are they going to know? He goes, come on. <laughs> so he takes me to this Irish, you know, rough and tumble Irish construction worker bar, right? We walk in, they're playing Irish fight music, and these guys couldn't hand me a dollar fast enough to get me out of their face. Sir, can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it is fine. Sell 50 bucks, right? Go home. My mother's like, great, I told you. All you got to do is be vigilant and apply yourself. Like, yeah, if you only knew, right? She goes, great. Go back to school on Monday and get another $50 worth of raffle tickets. Oh, God. Now I'm getting penalized, right? Following week, I bump into my friend, and uh, he goes, I'm not doing that again. He goes, you're off on your own. So I knew I couldn't go back to the Irish bar because I had just been in there and the bartender almost threw us out. Well, there was this other bar in my neighborhood, right? And I figured, well, I'll go there. And it always had the expensive cars parked outside. It's got the Italian flag on the roof. Yeah. The windows are blacked out. It's a mob social club, but I don't know, right? Yeah. I open the door and the sunlight goes in. It's pitch black in there. And the sunlight hits the bartender in the face and he throws his hands up like Dracula. He goes, shut that fucking door. I'm like, oh, oh, sorry. And I I, I should have left. I walk in and the bartender shout, what do you want? What do you want? And I said, you know, I, I hand him the raffle tickets. I go, um, um, I got to sell these, right? He goes, all right, here. He throws 20 bucks at me and I hand him the books. He goes, what? I go, I got to get. You got to give me your name. He goes, Ronald fucking Reagan. Get out of here. Right? <laughs> I don't know mobsters use aliases and don't, you know, pay their taxes. Right. I get a tap on the back. I turn around. There's this old Goomba. He's got enough hairspray or consort to burn a hole in the ozone layer. He hands me 20 bucks and he pinches my cheek. <laughs> so he goes, come on, get out of here, kid. Right. So I walk outside 
and I got 40 bucks with no raffle ticket side, right? Like nothing filled out. Yeah. So while I'm standing there trying to figure out what to do in New York, and it, we had these guys called meter maids. They're not cops. They're traffic enforcement agents. And they were yeah. hated in my neighborhood because there was no place to park. Everybody had a double park. And these guys would bang you with $40, $50 parking ticket. So while I'm standing out in front of this mob club, he's writing them for parking meter summonses. So I'm a smart ass. I go back into the bar and they're like, I told you to get out of here. I go, the meter maids write me tickets. I hold the door open. Four or five guys come running out <laughs> of the mob bar, right? The next thing you know, they're smacking around the traffic enforcement agent, right? He's on his ass. They take his summons book because he wrote down their license plate. They they kick his ass, take his summons book, and they drive off in different directions, right? <laughs> I think it's a finally, for me, it's a great day. I made 40 bucks and I just watched a meter maid get his ass kicked. They were hated in my neighborhood. I go home and my mother goes, did you sell any raffle tickets? I go, yeah, I sold $40 for it. She's, she couldn't have been happier, right? My father comes home. And my father knows his son. He knows his son cuts corners, right? He picks up the raffle tickets. And he, what I did was, because no one would give me their name, I wrote my name and address. Sure. That's what I do. Right? I wanted a basket of cheer. I didn't know what a basket of cheer was at 14 years old, but I wanted to win it. So I hear my father screaming. And you know how it is. When, when someone calls you by your full name, it's not yeah. good. You know, cops, parents, teachers, Victor Francis Ferrari, get down here. I'm down the stairs. And my father's holding the raffle ticket. He goes, I'm going to ask you once, why is your name on those books? I says, well, they wouldn't give me their names. And he goes, who's they? Like, he thought I stole money. And I go, the guy's in the bar. He goes, bar? What bar were you in selling raffle tickets? So I tell him, he goes, are you out of your mind? He goes, that's where racketeers hung out. He goes, there's probably somebody in the back getting their throat cut. And he got pissed off at my mother. He goes, that's it. I don't want you selling these goddamn things. He goes, if I got to work an extra day, you're done. That's it. And that was the last time I ventured into a mob social club to sell raffle tickets. That's a good one. Street stories, Vic Ferrari. That was a great one. You know, as as you got along in your career and, and with the NYPD, like kind of one last thing. <clears throat> where were you like were you still in auto theft did you stay there for a long time well i bounced around a lot so after field training i go to a south bronx precinct it's all burnt out there's a lot of vietnam guys left over and that precinct was a dumping ground so you either screwed up somewhere else or you were a rookie cop and didn't have family on the job to get you to a desirable precinct so i knew i didn't want to be there so i put in for a borough wide unit and that was into the frying pan, into the fire, because what I didn't know was you had more old timers that were making a lot of overtime. The borough sent in a lieutenant to be the hatchet man and and really mess with these guys and force them into retirement and shake things up. And then the old timers resented the rookies who didn't yeah. know any better that were doing their job. So then, you know, you're getting pushed around by the old timers like, what are you making all these arrests for? Why are you writing your summit? Like, I've heard that. Sorry, I've I got to get that. out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a pecking order in the NYPD. So I bounced around. I worked in a lot of places. I worked in several precincts. I worked in uh, the narcotics division. But my last 10 was in the NYPD's auto crime division. So chop okay. shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, junkyards, anything with stolen autos. All right, cool. That's that's what I thought. Yeah. When I first went to the intelligence unit, there's a bunch of old timers there that that they had it made in their mind they had it made they didn't have to do anything they wear blue jeans and t-shirts if they wanted you know polo shirts casual clothes had slick cars 
And I come in and a friend of mine who I actually grew up with came in about the same time. He got there first, then he put in a good word for me and we start working. So about, I don't know, about a month into it, one of the guys said, hey, Gary, one of the older guys said, Gary said, you know, meet me over at this bar, you know, we'll have a drink after work. Well, back <laughs> in those days, I was always up for a drink. And so we meet and Lee boys, we called him Lee boys, you know, I said, Gary said, you don't really need to work so hard you know, here in this unit. And I thought, oh, I've seen this before, just a little bit on patrol, but not this direct. <laughs> I said, I tell you what, Lee, I said, I'll work as hard as I want to work. And, you know, he just like, well, okay, <laughs> finished our beard and that was it. <laughs> no, they weren't that nice to you. Um, I got confronted a couple of times once in the locker room, once out by my car where they're like, you know, what are you making all these arrests for? I, I remember... I was in the DUI unit, which I hated, but I was new, and they stuck you in the DUI unit, so mm -hmm. I was making DUI. So the DUI guys were pushing back. Then I went to, but and then while I was in the DUI unit, I loved stolen cars. Like I just, I just enjoyed. It was the chase. It was, it was yeah. more enjoyable for me than locking up drunks. It was a challenge. And then the guys in the auto loss unit, like, what are you making? All you making us look bad. I'm like, well, aren't you making yourself look bad if you're not making the arrest? If you can't pull your weight, so <laughs> you're, you're right. They didn't invite you out for a drink. <laughs> um, they, they got you in the locker room or in the parking lot. And it was, um, it, it was a slippery slope of doing your job yeah. and, and trying to keep everybody happy. Yeah. It's tough. Did you ever, I have auto theft. Did you ever work with the national auto theft bureau? The, the national organization, NICB, did you work with oh, them? Oh God. Yeah. They were, they were that. They, they were, were great, so weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They were great. Um, so NICB, National Insurance Crime Bureau, now it's called National Auto Theft Bureau. Um, we would call them up. So if we had a car that the VIN number was changed, they, they had books that could, that could lead us to where confidential VIN numbers were, um, salvage histories on vehicles. I mean, it, it's, it's a great organization and it's just a wealth of information. Yeah, we used to call them all the time and, and they hire retired NYPD guys yeah. as liaisons. Um, same as Lojack. When Lojack first came out, they, they would hire retired NYPD guys to be the liaison because, you know, they could talk the talk. They could go to a station house. They knew who to ask for, you okay. know. So, um, yeah, it's a great organization. Yeah. Uh, did those Lojacks work or they still work? Is that uh, or, or do the thieves know where they are now and know how to disable them? I, I haven't kept up with that. So when they first came out, and I'm guessing it's the, it's the early 90s, I mean, we were making so much money with that because the thieves did, A, they didn't know about it, and B, they didn't know where it was. So yeah. we were getting search warrants. That was really hitting the mob hard because they didn't know about it. And, you know, guys were getting search warrants in places. And then it kind of tapered off because after a while, guys, we had a confidential informant that who had a friend that had built a LoJack detector. Yeah. So he could tell if the vehicle had LoJack before it was even activated. And when it was activated, he could tell pinpoint where it was. I'm uh, sure they've fine-tuned it. I got a funny story from one of my books. The LoJack liaison reaches out to us. I'm in auto at the time. And he goes, I got a bunch of these guys from the Moscow Police Department. <laughs> really? LoJack is trying to make inroads to Russia. So the Moscow Police Department sent a bunch of their guys over. And we're going to show them how LoJack works. They want to get a tour of a New York City police facility. W would it be okay if I bring these guys over? Yeah, sure. Bring them over, right? I'm expecting, you know, cops that look like us, right? <laughs> yeah. These guys look like 
thug bouncers at, at a Manhattan <laughs> club, like rough looking guys, man. Like, you know, you're an NYPD cop. You think you're a tough guy. You see those guys from <laughs> the Moscow Police Department. These guys had fucking mitts, right? So it's none of them speak a word of English, right? It's like Boris, Sergey, like there's eight of them, right? And yeah. their interpreter is probably like a KGB agent, right? Yeah. And we're showing them the, the you know, the precinct and everything. And they're, they're like kids. They're, they're you know, because they watch television over in Russia. Yeah. So they're in our police cars. They're hitting the sirens. They, they, <laughs> they love this shit, right? So then it's time for like the question and answer thing, right? And, you know, the guy starts talking to the translator and he goes, what gun do you find the most effective for stopping car? I go, what do you mean? Like shooting into it? He goes, yes. I go, we don't shoot into cars here. And like, they're all looking at each other, right? <laughs> and then another guy, then, you know, the guy asks a question and the translator goes, how do you feel um, best way to get the confession out of someone? <laughs> I had explained to this guy, like, Miranda warnings and we don't go tuning people up. And, you know, that's frowned upon in the United States. And they're looking at us like we're the biggest <laughs> pussies in the world, right? So- the guy goes out to his car, he comes out with this box, and he opens it up, and he's got these commemorative, they look like Olympic bronze medals. Yeah. Stuff written in Russian in it, and it was supposedly commemorating the 60th anniversary of the Moscow police. For all I know, it could have said, kiss my Russian ass, <laughs> capitalist yeah. big, but we smile, we, we, take, we, we take the gifts. So typical NYPD fashion. They don't get anything for these guys, right? And we're kind of we kind of feel like assholes because we're standing around at the end. So I go, hold on. I go up to the locker room with a glad bag, like a garbage bag, and I'm picking up old hats, old yeah. nightsticks, yeah. anything, any type of NYPD memorabilia that we're, we're gonna throw out, right? <laughs> I bring it downstairs, and these fucking guys are fighting over it, like tearing open the bag, like like these big, like they couldn't, they're putting on our hats. I had to make a second trip up to the locker room and beg guys, could you give me your old nightstick? Can you give me this? Can you give me old shirt? These guys ate it up. And want to hear another story about a guy coming from another police department? Yeah. I so I'm, this is years later, I'm in the auto crime division and I hear two detectives arguing with this sergeant and I kind of got my ear pinned up and, and my sergeant, the sergeant's going to them. You don't got to marry the guy. Just take him for a tour of the city. So there was this guy from the Tokyo police department. He was in New York and they were putting him with different units for the day. Yeah. yeah we've and had that. They wanted yeah. him to go out with two detectives from the auto crime division. These two detectives wanted no part of giving this guy a tour of the city. And they're like, well, what are we going to show him a crack house in the Bronx? Like, well, what do you want us to show them this guy? So Sergeant goes here, here's 20 bucks, buy him lunch. And they go, what are we going to buy with 20 bucks? And he shows them out. <laughs> I think nothing, nothing of it. About an hour later, these two detectives come back without the Japanese guy, and I see them fishing around for keys for another radio car, and I go, what happened? And they go, you want to see something funny? I said, yeah. So I go downstairs to the parking lot. In there, we had terrible cars. Slumped over in the back seat of this filthy Buick is this little Japanese guy sleeping in the back seat with an expensive camera and a half a bottle of Gatorade. <laughs> and I go, what the fuck? They go, too much sake from last night. He went out with the Vice guys He's yeah. really hung over. We started showing him around. He passed out in the back seat. We're just going to leave him in the back seat and we're going to get another car and get lunch with the 20 bucks. I go, what if he wakes up? They go, ah, what's going to happen? I go, we're in the South Bronx. A lot could happen. They go, fuck him. Come on. Let's go get lunch with the 20 bucks. So we get another car. We leave him in his playpen and we go off. We come back a half hour, 45 minutes later. 
We go into the park a lot, and Tokyo Joe is nowhere to be found. Like, oh, shit. Like, we, we don't even have his fall, right? This yeah. is like the mid-90s. So <laughs> we're in the South Bronx. If he made a right, went to the housing projects, he's going to get robbed. Yeah. If he makes a left and makes his way into the station house, that that sergeant's going to go ballistic that they left him alone and unattended, right? Yeah. So I run into the, I, they get back in their car and they start canvassing the area for this guy. I run into our office. I know he's nowhere to be found. And the sergeant goes, did you see? I go, no, I didn't see them. I grab another set of keys and now I'm canvassing the area looking for this guy. Now, 15 minutes later, here's this Japanese guy standing in the middle of the street with a salmon colored shirt. Now in the South Bronx, you got a lot. We had a lot of abandoned buildings, and when guys get killed in the neighborhood, drug dealers or victims of homicides, they'll they'll spray paint a mural of the person on a yeah. wall. So you had just this recently drug dealer named Trey Bag or Kilo had just gotten killed. So they've got a mural of him on the wall with his beloved pit bull, and this Japanese <laughs> guy is standing in the middle of the street with this expensive camera taking photos of it, right? <laughs> so I slam on the brakes, I jump out of the car, and I show my police ID. The guy comes running up to me like a lost child at Disney World, and he's hugging me around the waist. He was so short. He's grabbing me around the waist. I'm like, all right, get in the car, get in the car, right? I don't want him to get robbed. I go over the radio, and I tell the two guys, I found what we're looking for. Meet me back at the parking lot, because I don't want to go over the air and go, we, yeah. we found Tokyo Joe. So we go into the parking lot and my two friends are, this guy doesn't speak a word of English and he's hung over and they're tearing in there. Why did you leave? I told you not to leave. And the guy's got his head down like in shame. And I'm like, he knows, like just lay off of him. So they brought him back, right? I go back to the office. They show up an hour later and the sergeant's like, did you get a receipt for lunch? And my buddy's <laughs> like, what, what are you kidding me? Like, the whole thing went away, but I mean, that's an incident where we could have had an international incident where this guy could have gotten <laughs> robbed and killed because he kind really? of ventured off the playing field. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful who you send those visitors out with. I had a newspaper reporter that wanted to ride with my squad. We were working with an attack squad, so I had these rough guys. And I put I shouldn't have put him with this the kind of the squad leader. Uh, but I did. And he told this newspaper reporter told me later, he said, boy, he said, that guy drives fast. I thought, oh my God, there's no telling what he did. So I'm reading the article that the reporter wrote about, we were, we were working, a, uh, we had a, a serial rapist work in the neighborhood. So we all went out in plain clothes and slick cars and we we're all filtered around the neighborhood, just sitting and watching and trying to catch somebody that fit right. the description. <laughs> And this guy wrote this article. He's talking, I mean, he wrote, he made this guy look like super cop though. He said, oh, he's got this flat black automatic pistol and he was slipping through the backyards. <laughs> oh my God. He wasn't supposed to have a semi-automatic at the time. You were only supposed to carry wheel guns back in the day. They didn't let us have automatics. For, this was kind of like an off the books gun. <laughs> so yeah, you got to be careful who you send those visiting uh, dignitaries and visiting people out with <laughs> in police departments. Yeah, that could, I mean, on our end, if something would have happened to those guys, my friends would have gotten screwed. And, uh, and, you know, and then like going back to the Moscow Police Department, they were nice <laughs> guys, but I mean, yeah. rough. rough. I mean, nothing, <laughs> you know, and, and like, again, you know, we thought we we're badasses. And, you know, these guys <laughs> yeah, were yeah. looking at us like we were the biggest pussies in the world because <laughs> we, we have to play by the rules. And apparently they don't. 
crazy. Well, different cultures, you know, they do different things. I used to have a TV show that followed some of the Moscow police around, and man, they they beat the crap. I saw that. I, I know you, you saw that. Like they would just pull people out of cars and start smacking them around. They yeah, just beat that. the crap out of people. My God, <laughs> you go to jail here. Vic, this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Now, one last thing, guys. Vic has a new podcast of his own. It's on YouTube and the audio apps. Uh, I assume you're on all the apps. You go through Apple. Then Apple usually sends it out to all the other Stitcher and, and all the other apps. So I, I assume you're out there. Now, what was the name of that podcast? Podcast is the same as my book, and it's the same artwork. It's called NYPD Through the Looking Glass. I just launched it last week. I have two episodes out, and it's a behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department, and I, I, I'm going to interview retired NYPD members to tell their stories. Cool. Cool. That'll be fun. I look forward to that. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it, but it's only been out two weeks, so it's not like I can keep my finger on all the 200, 300,000 podcasts that are out there. <laughs> Welcome to the world. Now you got to create your niche out there. But you, you can do it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you you got to do well at it. You got a knack for storytelling. And guys, I'm going to have a link to that podcast down below, too, so you can find links to Vic's books and, and to his new podcast. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Vic. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure. Anytime, come on back. Gary, thank you so much. I, I, it's always, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there driving around. You don't want to hit me. <laughs> and I've had, I have not been a hit, but I've had some pretty close calls because people don't see you. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. And if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, don't forget our friend, former Gambino member, Anthony Ruggiano, is a drug and alcohol counselor down in Florida. So you could go down there and you could have a real deal mob guy be your your drug near alcohol counselor. And, and he has a hotline on his website, too. I think it's maybe anthonyruggiano.com or just start Googling around looking for Anthony Ruggiano. Uh, thanks a lot, Vic. Anytime.